Welcome to recordings from the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music. The biennial festival brings together musicians, critics, journalists, artists, and listeners for three days of concerts, lectures, and conversations that explore the intersection of music and spirituality. What follows is a conversation between Jessica Hopper and Hanif Willis Abdurraqib. Jessica is a music journalist who has written for everyone from Spin to GQ to Rookie. She's also written two books, The Girl's Guide to Rocking, How to Start a Band, Book Gigs, and Get Rolling to Rock Stardom, and the first collection of criticism by a living female rock critic. She currently serves as the executive editor at MTV News. Hanif is a poet, essayist, and cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. His current poetry collection is titled The Crown Ain't Worth Much, and his collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, is due out this winter. In this session, Jessica and Hanif discuss the importance of diverse representation in pop culture and of working in creative communities. The conversation was recorded on the campus of Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan on March 31st, 2017. Good morning. Welcome to our talk. Uh, I work with, uh, I've, I've, I've uh, had the incredible honor of editing Hanif quite a bit the last two years, uh, working together and we've done some readings together and um, uh, part of the reason I wanted to bring him here is because, uh, well one, I love to talk to him anytime I get the chance to, but that um, he wrote my favorite book of the last year and, um, and that he speaks to topics and ideas that I know as a community um, this festival generally has been very engaged with. Um, so I'm wondering, honey, if you can just sort of talk to us a little bit about um, why don't we start with um, how did you come to writing and where did you come to it? That's a good question. Um, so I, I didn't write a lot of poems. I write poems primarily, well, I don't even know if I can say I write poems primarily anymore because every week I write about music. So in some weeks I don't write any poems. Um, but I, I think I grew up in a household with a writing mother. Um, and so I witnessed my mother writing on a typewriter, an old typewriter where the ones where if you make a mistake, you're, you're done, right? You make a mistake on a page and you gotta start again. Um, my mother wrote a, a novel um, before she passed away. And so I got to witness the act of writing in the rigorous, in a, in a really rigorous form. We didn't have a computer growing up because we were poor, but we had this old typewriter. Um, and so I think I, I came to writing by witnessing writing. And I think that's why a lot of my work takes place in the realm of like watching, right? And like reporting on something, I, I think, even if it's not reporting in the traditional sense of like going to a place, right? I think so many of my poems are operating in the act of reporting on location and race and, and emotions. Um, but I didn't write poems for a very long time. I used to write uh, really bad music journalism like in my house uh, as like a teenager. Um, I grew up, in my, my parents were really into music. They had a ton of records. My dad is still a bit of a archivist when it comes to the collection of records and, uh, and instruments. Um, he plays several instruments, like none of them well, but just has several around the house. Um, and so I've always been interested in the way 
that music acts as a bridge to something greater because when I was a kid in middle school and I was weird and like not good looking and like had terrible fashion, um, I had good, I had like, I was always the first to get a good rap tape, you know what I mean? Cause like I wouldn't buy shoes, I would go on Tuesdays um, and buy the cassettes, I would buy like the, you know, like the music doesn't really come out on Tuesdays anymore. So like Friday nights, Friday nights is a thing now. So this is probably, and several of you are too young perhaps to remember when, but I used to go every Tuesday morning before school, there was a record shop down the street from my house and I'd buy cassettes and then take them to school and people would think I was the coolest kid there. That was my, that was my entry point. Right. And so that in a way was writing to me, right. It was in a way imagining myself as something greater than I was, which I think I do in my work, and it began there. Um, so you grew up in Columbus, Ohio. Even though people keep saying that you are from Cleveland, people think it's yeah. On they, my literal Wikipedia page, it says I'm from somebody's Cleveland. trolling you and changing it to Cleveland yeah. over and over. I think. Um, so you grew up in Columbus. You. Grew up in a, in a, you have brothers, a couple brothers. Yeah, I have two brothers and a sister. And you grew up in a Muslim household. I did. What were the, if any, strictures around music, culture, TV yeah. that you grew up with that informed, that then, or what were they and then how did they inform your taste? Um, my parents didn't want us listening to rap music. That was like an early thing. Eventually they gave up, right? But like, and I'm the youngest, they're saying I'm the youngest of four. So by the time they got to me, it was kind of just like, they gave up completely. Um, but my oldest brother would, um, first it was like hard rule, no rap music. Then it was like, okay, no rap music with parental advisory stickers on the, on the album covers. Problem is, in the 90s, um, the stickers used to be literal stickers, right? A shift happened, I think, in the like, mid-late 90s where they began printing them on the actual albums. But in like, the early, from like 92 to like 96 or 7, you could, you could just peel them off. <laughs> and my, my parents were none the wiser. You know, my dad didn't listen to rap, and my mom, did, when she was alive, did not listen to rap. And so like, my brother would like, peel the sticker off the chronic and just bring it in the house, and my dad would be like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> without at all reading into the, you know, like the titles, you know, the albums or the songs. Um, so because rap was this forbidden thing, it really um, pushed me into it, you know, and like pop culture in general. My parents converted to Islam, so they were like in that wave of like American East Coasters um, who converted in the 70s, um, which means that prior to their conversion, they were like immersed in American pop culture, right, Western culture. Um, and so whereas some of my friends who were raised Muslim from parents who were not American, the, the kind of strict regiment in my household was, was like, you know, we could watch the Cosby show uh, and we could watch like a different world and that was it, you know, like, then you gotta go to bed. Um, but a lot of my, a lot of the things that shine through, I think is the structure around reading. Um, my mother was teaching me Arabic when I was four years old. Um, so I learned, to read Arabic perhaps more efficiently than I learned to read English. Um, I, you know, the writing Arabic is difficult and, and uh, I almost said awful and I don't want to say awful. It's awful. 
right? Because it requires, when you're like four or five years old, it is certainly awful because it requires a steady hand and it requires just rigorous, like, free flow. It's like learning cursive on steroids when your hand is tiny. Um, so I learned to fall in love with writing and the rigors of writing and the, like, the way your hand feels after crafting a sentence with your bare hand. Um, that more than the culture strictures really affected my, my views. What was the first music that felt like your music? Oh, uh, can I ask you that question first? What was the first music that felt like your music? Oh, so like the replacements? No, I mean, sort of, maybe, I don't know. Um, the first music, I, I, have, I have kind of a memory of I wanted punk rock before I kind of knew what punk rock was or where to find it or where to hear it. Yeah. And I was, and so I was into like Hendrix or like stuff that my dad might kind of put me on to. But I wanted something that was sort of like rebellious and maybe saying something sort of political. Yeah. Um, and the first place that really uh, deposited me was the first Tracy Chapman album. Bazan's repping for that one you better do fast car tomorrow Um, but then once I um, once I started buying music for my really for myself once I figured out like oh punk rock was the thing I was looking for not this delight tape though it was great Um, uh, you know but like the the or B fifty twos are kind of what you could find about nineteen eighty eight nineteen ninety, uh, fairly readily in the tape shops that I, I frequented, um, but once I f- once I found like the thing that was like oh this is really my thing it was Babes in Toyland and and the first Bikini Kill demo probably and Fugazi, sort of right all in the same time where I was like oh this is music that is saying something that's you know, screaming something uh, that's upset, that's, like, angry, and it's my thing, and not all my friends are into it. Yeah. And my parents certainly weren't about to understand it, and that was that was fairly crucial. I wanted something that was, like, just just in my bubble. Like, le- legible to only you and, and no one older yes. type of thing? I wish my answer was that interesting. Um, I think I had a very stereotypical, like, black youth experience with this where like I remember watching the Smooth Criminal music video um, in, in my house I think Michael Jackson was so fascinating because um, there was an era of black pop star that coincided with my coming of age or like being old enough to know what music was that made it seem like every black musician everywhere had always been a pop star right so, like, there was that convergence of Michael Jackson and Whitney Houston, and that was what I first knew. And so, everything, and so then it was like, man, like, Jody Watley should be the biggest star on the planet because Whitney Houston is. And then it was like, so I had this really jarring thing where I realized not every black musician was as massive as Michael Jackson or Whitney Houston. But I remember the, like, for me, Golden Era Michael Jackson um, is when he wasn't making his best records but was like doing the coolest stuff visually. So like Bad and Dangerous era Michael Jackson, 
where it's like those video, like I remember watching the Remember the Time video and thinking like, this is a, a movie. You know, this is like this song isn't better than the stuff on Off the Wall, but like it doesn't matter because this is taking excess to a level that um, I grew up poor too, right? And so like seeing like a black person covering themselves in gold was something that was somewhat freeing, you know? Um, so I think like Dangerous Era, Michael Jackson, and like of course the first Whitney Houston record was really pivotal to me. And and you, you, Whitney is a uh, sometimes a theme in your poems. Yeah. Uh, but you write. I think I saw. I th- if, if I'm understanding this this Instagram right, you write with a painting of Whitney in front of your desk. Do. My desk is set up. <laughs> Sorry, uh, my desk is set up. Uh, I have a painting of Whitney Houston on the left side and a painting of Otis Redding on the right side. And on the like side, uh, I have like a closet that has a large Elton John painting on it. So I'm surrounded by, and then I have like the um, a Slater Kinney concert poster that I stole from. Um, there's this punk venue. Is anyone here from Ohio? Is anyone from Columbus? Oh, that's the deep Ohio contingent. No one from Columbus. Oh uh, well. I, I too Sorry, am from I Cleveland, depending Cleveland on who you um, There's this old punk venue um, that I write about in my book. The last poem in the book is about the tearing down of this punk venue. This punk venue called Little Brothers um, in Columbus. And when they tore it down, there was like all these old concert posters that me and my buddies, like, we at first, prote- like, I was young when they tore it down. Young. I was like 22. Um, young enough young enough young enough to like stand in front of the like me and my friends like stood in front of the bulldozer like you won't tear this down and then the police were like they will run you over (laughs) and we were like probably true Um, but we snuck back in at night and like snuck in through a back window that we used to like sneak the weed guy in through and we stole all these concert posters and so I have this stolen Slater Kinney concert poster from a punk venue that also hangs on the door because I I never I did not see Slater Kinney live until they came back, and it's the biggest regret of my like live music life. What in in your uh, in your heart or your spirit, your mind? Uh, where does 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 Whitney Houston and Slater Kinney connect for you in a way? Yeah, I think they both write songs about freedom, right? I think the freedom just looks differently than you know, like I think Whitney Houston's freedom is like tied up in this very, well, at least, like, early career Whitney Houston. And, and like, I think, it, like, the early career Whitney Houston and the later career Whitney Houston are speaking of two entirely different things where it's, like, um, the difficulty of wanting, I think, like, I Want to Dance with Somebody, right, is this, like, perfect pop song about wanting to get free on your own terms. Um, and I think the Slater Kinney song, Number One Must Have, off of... Uh, all Hands on the Bad One, yeah, mm-hmm. is also a great song about wanting to get free on your own terms. The terms are just different, right? Because they operate the world in different ways, with different identities. What, what is, so, so these are obviously some things that are like great touchstones for you in terms of um, maybe sort of where you, uh, the, the, I don't know your relationship with Elton John. I can just speculate. But as far as pop music, lots of times in your writing and in your criticism and in your poetry, you are retrospective. 
but in this way, when I read your work, I, I feel like it's not nostalgic in the way that a lot of, the way that we really see some criticism be nostalgic. Um, you know, this idea like, this old thing was better, and this new thing is trash, and the people who like it are trash. Um, and that what I feel like your <laughs> retrospection, and lots of times writing about older music and older artists, um, and you know, your relationship with their music, um, to me, it's sort of, it is much more of a reviving and remembering the past rather than this framework of nostalgia. Can you talk about yeah. your, your relationships with these things? So I think because I am fiercely committed to the idea of nostalgia as an artistic and conversational tool, it is my responsibility to also be honest about nostalgia. You know what's weird? The other day... I was in this, I was in the, I have this group chat with all these other black uh, contemporary poets. We did this like fellowship together um, and we never, we just like never left the group chat we were in during that fellowship. Um, and the other day, one of them um, was like, the Wiz was very good. And I was like, no, no, the Wiz was not good. Like I think, and it's like, and I think it's a thing that has been like debunked over the years is that the Wiz was not very good. The, the original. The original. The original. Yeah, yeah. Okay. This has Diana Ross in it. You know what I mean? Like, and everyone in the group chat was like, "Oh, this is absurd! How dare you!" Right? And I, I think there's, I'm of two minds to that. One, I think um, black artists tend to protect black art, right? So that's like the first instinct. But also, if we can't like be honest about something old being trash, then how can we like properly? unearthed it in a way that that connected to us. I don't think The Wiz is good, but I remember sitting at the feet of my mother and watching it, and that is good. Like, that is what is good about The Wiz, not the actual interior of the film, because Diana Ross, you know, was like, yeah, I mean, it wasn't a great film, but I remember that scene in The Wiz where the pillars come apart, and I remember being afraid and hugging my mother's leg, and that is good. And I need, in order to get to the core of what is good, it, sometimes you need to admit that the thing that, that is sitting outside of that core is not as good. Um, and so my relationship with nostalgia is one that, that is honest because I, I'm trying to work through, like I'm trying to work through memory in a way that honors the memories themselves and not the like wide scope of, of you know, like when I write about Whitney Houston, for example, uh, sometimes it's not about the songs. It's the songs are fine, but it is about the, what those songs built on top of a life that, you know, for me at least, my life, my my young life, that would have perhaps been unspectacular without those songs. What? That sort of makes me think about how in a, a fair amount of uh, work in your book, which is for sale out on the table, which everyone in this room needs, um, there is quite a bit in your book that's, that's sort of about... Uh, how Columbus was for you growing up. And a lot of your work uh, touches on gentrification and sort of um, memory almost as a, as, a, as a protection, as a bulwark for uh, the gentrification of places where you've lived or the, er uh, the erasure of places that you've lived. Um, do you think in some ways it functions in the same way when you're writing about music or are those two sort of distinct functions? Do I think memory functions in the same way? Like, is, is that relationship in the same way? Like, are you sort of right. protecting an old memory or an old idea or an old relationship with 
music? Or are those two separate things? I think I'd maybe lean a little harder into protecting um, the memory of location in geography, right? Because I can go back and revisit a record, you know? An old song is always gonna be an old song. There are buildings in my hometown that I don't remember what they look like anymore because they've been gone for so long. You know, the like, the barber shop where I got my hair cut for years is gone and is now a bakery. And I, when I look at it, I can't see the barber shop. And so I need to, the book is an exercise in archiving memory in a way that honors literal structures, right? So that, uh, so when I, sorry, this is like going slightly off. No, go, go, take it out. When I, when I was doing press for the book, um, a publication in Columbus was like, we'd love to have you come back and like walk us through the neighborhood where, you know, the bulk of this book takes place. And I said, sure. Um, and I went to the east side where I'm from and I was pointing out things and I was like, yeah, this is, you know, my friends and I used to ride our bikes here. My friends and I used to get ice cream here. Um, and the, the interviewer turned to me and said, well, this doesn't, this is like a, a neighborhood that has been gentrified and changed, right? And the, the interviewer turned to me and said, well, this doesn't look like you grew up in a bad neighborhood at all. And I remember thinking how fascinating that if we, if we cannot show people where we're from, then that is, it drains their empathy for us quicker. If we can't show people where we come from accurately, it strips away a layer of who we are. And because what that actually, the, the like, and I don't wanna knock this interviewer, um, but the message underneath what she was saying is, well, who are, you to, who are you to write about this then? Who are you to say that, who are you to write about race in this way? Who are you to write about change in this way? Because it doesn't look like you had it bad because you're, t you're pointing at a gourmet ice cream shop right now and not a corner store. And so all the trappings of quote unquote urban America don't exist anymore. So who are you to archive it in this way? And I wasn't offended by that because I know what that is. I know what it is to not be able to locate your past and therefore have people react to it in a way that misidentifies you as a person. Um, and so I think when in the, the act of writing the book is so much about saying, I'm from this place that no longer looks like it used to, but I am from here. And you'll never be able to take that away from me because I know that I'm from here. You carry a lot of Columbus and Columbus memory and location, place, sounds with you in your in 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 the work that's in this book specifically. What else when you're writing about music, when you're hearing music, particularly if if you're going to be writing about it, if you're sort of ingesting it. Yeah. What do you carry with you that informs how you hear it, how you receive it? Can I ask you a thing? Sure. I mean, I'm going to answer that. Sure. But also, like, so I think, um, can I, this is weird, but I'm going to say this out loud right now in front of everyone. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jessica's work and have been for a long time. And so this thing happened where, um, like, a couple years ago, I wrote a thing about Fetty Wap, um, and Jessica somehow saw it and, like, emailed me um, and was like, hey, it's time you're at Pitchfork, right? It was like, hey, you should like write some stuff. But I had to like act cool, like I didn't know who she was. 
because I thought that would be weird if I was like, and so I was just like, oh yeah, pitchfork, you say. <laughs> I believe I've heard of the publication. Um, but, but like, I, I'm interested in, um, I think a thing you do so well is like, um, capturing the interior of a song or a moment. Like I think, um, one of my favorite things you've ever written is that, uh, it's like an open letter to um, Sufjan, about driving through Chicago. Where does that come from? Like, where do you like, like do you think when you listen to music, are you forming a relationship with the person who created it? Hmm, that is, that's, um, sometimes, Maybe I, 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 it's funny. I haven't written a lot in the last like two or three years because I've been editing a lot and I was working on a book for a while, even though it was a book of things that were already written. Yeah. Um, so I can't pretend like that took too much. But um, the first thing I'm thinking about is like when I was writing, um, I, I, uh, I was writing a review of, what was it, uh, Ryan Adams? record that sounds it's it's like the pre-1985 one that kind of sounds like a bad solo Paul Westerberg album <laughs> does anyone know what I'm talking about it's like got the really bad like 19 very specifically 1987 sort of guitar tone it's maybe like five years old four or five years old and I kept thinking about and I, I don't normally think about it but I kept thinking about Ryan Adams reading it because for some reason at the time he had blocked me I, he does this with a lot of critics like blocks uh, like pretty much every working critic is blocked by Ryan Adams. Though weirdly, he I'm not saying this to be like, hmm. he just DM'd me and asked me where the punk shows were during South by Southwest. And I was like, weird. I didn't even, like, I'm unblocked and whatever. Unblocked you just to find out where the yeah, punk shows like, were. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what's happening there. Um, but anyways, and I kept thinking about how would Ryan Adams feel that I'm I'm comparing him to, like, Don Henley and this like real, this real tail end of like, I feel like 19, about 1988, 1986, that around that era was sort of the last time that um, aged white men were allowed to be pop stars. And I felt like that was so much of what he was conjuring was like that kind of tail end of, of that era. Like Michael Bolton and Don Henley and maybe these are references that are a little too old uh, for some of you. but. But I was like, oh, he's doing that so well. And I, I, I thought about him reading that. And I thought about him, how does he feel about that? But generally, I don't think about... I don't think about who's reading my work other than my editor and maybe, like, two of my friends. Um, but I think that's changed over time. I think when I first started writing, and I, I realized this a lot more when I was editing like an anthology of my work that I put out, that a lot of my earlier work is definitely, there was, there was a lot of sort of preciousness happening. I was definitely trying to be entertaining. I was definitely trying to get like people's attention with my writing sometimes, and those are the parts that I took out because it was like very weak. Um, but I don't, I mean, I, I, I feel like um, for the, sort of for the sanctity and clarity of my writing, I had to stop caring what other people thought. And I think part of that also dovetailed f in a time when a lot of my writing went from being like print, primarily consumed via print to something that people could comment on and share and things like that. Yeah. Um, so maybe that 
changed and I just was like I don't I don't want to have to care what anybody thinks and commenters or anything like that and so I really sort of closed the aperture on who I was writing to or about or for and really just trying to go like is this is this true is this true can I get deeper into this truth about how I think about this or feel about it it was a very long answer that maybe didn't address that was a great answer I'm sorry I zoomed out of the question you asked me um I feel bad about that what do you what do you what do you bring with you what do you carry with you into your your music listening mind oh I'm always interested in um, so one of my one of my poetry mentors, I, I I think I listen to music like in the same way I approach poems. Um, does anyone know the poet Terence Hayes? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Terence has been my mentor for a while. In um, a thing he he told me in a workshop once. Um, there's this poem in, in the book uh, about essentially. Uh, about someone pulling out a gun at the block party. Um, but it's framed through the lens of the Montel Jordan song, This Is How We Do It. And in the early stages, it was very much about the lyrics in the song. And Terrence was like, that's not the story. There's always a story underneath the story, and then there's a story underneath that. And so you got to find the story that's three layers deep and then write from that, that inside out. And so I, when I listen to music, I'm always doing that as well. I'm trying to hear from the inside out as opposed to like, you know, yeah, it's easy for me to be like, um, I feel bad using her as an example because I talk about her a lot. But it's easy for me to be like, well, Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion is just such a good, plain, pure pop album, right? But listening to it from the inside out, that's a, a deeply sad album about distance and desire, right? And like not feeling connection. You know, it's like this like wild, and I think Tegan and Sarah Sakata had this too, where I was like, Listening to that from the inside out, it's devastating. And yeah, that it can be devastating, and also I can clap my hands to it and nod my head to it and dance to it somewhere. But I am most interested in whatever is resting three layers underneath whatever the top layer of it is. And sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's like watching the visuals from Lemonade and being like, oh, well, I get that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But other times it's work, and I think that work is rewarding. Some of some of your most interesting work for me and and I don't even want to say surprising but you are you're one of the people uh maybe one of the only writers I know and I don't mean this in a bad way who is uh who still takes uh or <clears throat> actively takes emo seriously or maybe I'm I, overstating no, that No, I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> um but that you have you have a, a like a I would say a fairly earnest relationship with emo that I think some of us have, <laughs> some of us might have abandoned at some point um, in yeah. our in our old cynical ways Ooh. or when at the drive-in broke up or like whatever was our breaking point. Um, can you talk about? Maybe sort of like what is what's sort of the spiritual endowment of? of emo for you like what what work does it do for you how much time do we have at I could least talk about three this. hours i could talk so my workshop's not till tomorrow let's let's talk about this until tomorrow a funny thing is so i have a I have emo a, overnight camp well i have a book of essays coming out in the winter in the central this is like funny to say out loud i said this out loud to a friend back home last week and she was like of course um 
the central essay in the book is a literally a 6,000 word essay uh, called Fallout Boy Forever. But it's not, it's like rooted in this thing where it, it hinges on, and there's a poem in, in my book about my friend Tyler. Um, so much of my relationship to emo. So I grew up in Columbus, close proximity to Chicago, um, and all the cool shows. So I, and I came to these bands um, at the kind of end of Chicago hardcore, like when Armangelos was breaking up and when like, you know, Killing Tree was breaking up and then like everyone was splintering in their own directions, like Rise Against was starting and Fall Out Boy was starting and all these bands were starting. And um, we would drive to these shows, like whoever had, you know, the money for gas would go to Chicago or whoever had a car that was running, which is often me. Um, we would go to Chicago and just like, you know, you could see these shows for, for no money and we would see all these bands, you know, like I saw the first, I saw the first ever fallout boy show, you know, when they didn't have a name. Um, and then I saw like the second ever show where they were like getting heckled at like a hardcore tribute concert. Um, cause people were like making fun of Patrick's voice and like, you know, Pete was really shy, uh, which is hilarious to think now. And I saw like, the show where they like they played this show on Halloween night in like 2003 at Knights of Columbus where the stage literally collapsed you know what I mean and so like I saw all of the early phases of a lot of and Fall Out Boy is just one that is easy to stick with because I saw their rise and if you saw them or any of those Chicago emo pop punk whatever bands from like 2002 to 2004 it for me it was like a an awakening of like a conversation that I've been trying to have in my own head for a long time and someone was having it outside of my body. Um, and I clung to that for so long. Uh, and now, yeah, like, it's, it's mostly nostalgia for me. But I also think that it's, a, you know, there's no emo revival happening, unfortunately, as much as I'd like it to happen. Unless, is there one? Does someone know of one? I think it's mostly exists in a trend piece yeah, form. It's, like, mostly. But I also, like... Hot Topic is still there. I was in a Hot Topic. I was in a Hot Topic, unfortunately, uh, like getting T-shirts before Christmas because a friend of mine. So I'm from Columbus, and, and the, weirdly, um, after years of having no big bands come out of Columbus, despite like several good bands, like I think the biggest band to come out of Columbus was Saint Seneca for a while, um, and then yeah, shout out is anyone Mike Saint Seneca? Shout out Saint Seneca, like. Great, great folks. Um, Are you about to talk about 21 yeah. Pilots? 21 Pilots and Beartooth. So the ascension of like 21 Pilots and Beartooth at the same time is just like really baffling, I think, for a lot of Columbus people, right? Um, once, and now I feel like I'm rambling and I'm sorry. Um, no, just unload. Let's talk about 20, let's just unpack 21 Pilots for a while. I want to say that, I want to say that they are, I used to like, Columbus is a very insular art scene, so everyone just folds on top of everyone. So I've like read poems at shows where 21 Pilots play and their parents would bring brownies and, and stuff like that. You know, no one, they were like the cool, the funny weirdos from the suburbs. Once they like tried to, once during an art festival, they tried to drag a piano into a, a tiny narrow alley and it got stuck kind of like sideways. And so they just like played on this sideways, like Tyler was just like playing on this sideways piano in an alley. So I have fond memories of 21 Pilots, but I don't think they are representative of the Columbus sound. And I don't think Beartooth is representative of the Columbus sound. So I'm saying all that to say I was in Hot Topic and I saw 21 Pilots and Beartooth shirts and I was like, oh, this is, this is, this is where Columbus music is now. 
the shape of Columbus music to come. Everyone wants to be like 21 Pilots, who are, who are great and they give back to the city and they are like, but I just wish they um, were better songwriters. Let's go, let's go to the audience. Hand. The question is hard to hear, so I'll repeat it. How do you feel about the gentrification of music? How should we think about cultural appropriation in this context? Once we realize, like once we, we are at, the entire thesis of this is that there are some doors that cannot be closed, right? So once we realize that all music, at least in some way, shape, or form, is rooted in black music, that we can't close that door. So then we get about the business of talking about how to honor that, right? And so I am so tired or not inspired by selective conversations about appropriation, right? I don't want to hear a conversation anymore about like, well, Justin Timberlake sings in a falsetto and dances, so like, isn't he appropriating Al Green? When it's like, well, yeah, of course he is. He's like a Memphis, yeah, of course he's appropriating Al Green, but how do we talk about how to honor the fact that every foundation is rooted in something that the people standing on the foundation are, are benefiting from, and they weren't there, right? I, and sometimes, in these conversations, we ignore real cultural exchanges that erase people. When we talk about Drake, no one ever talks about Toronto, right? No one ever talks about Toronto as a city where cultural exchanges take place that would lead, of course, like Drake rides waves and all that, blah, blah, blah. But no one talks about these cities as a place of cultural exchange where these things take place and lead to someone having access to a language that is not their own and honoring it. And so, yeah, we think of appropriation solely as like, oh, look at Katy Perry wearing gold teeth or like look at this person wearing dreadlocks and whatever the heck. Uh, but when we don't talk about it as far as like, what is this person, where does this person sit in their own individual culture and how are they honoring the people who carried them there? Because um, that's a harder conversation to have. Because if, if we want to like, what is the logical conclusion of something saying that like, white people shouldn't make quote unquote black music? There's, there's no, what's the logical conclusion of that? We, we're saying like, and, and, and this isn't to say that like, I don't cringe when like, I don't know. Um, a thing I think about a lot is, is there a good way to be a white rapper? The thing I think about all the time, right? Maybe not, but I think that's part of being a white rapper, is that you get to benefit from being a white rapper even though there's no good way to do it. Is the way to do it to be Macklemore, to be like so consumed by your own guilt that you like sabotage your career? Which like, no one talks, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm like rambling super hard. No, no. That's, no one talks please, about the fact that like- Please keep talking about Macklemore. You're literally the only person I want to hear talk about Macklemore. Like, so Macklemore's last record, right? Like no one bought it. No one cared about it because on it, he's like unraveling all this stuff that people did not want to hear about themselves because he was so driven by his own guilt that he thought, I'm going to just talk to white people about whiteness, knowing what the logical conclusion of that was. So do you do that? Or do you, do you like fit this stereotype of like Eminem, right? 
the punchline to all of this is that no one, no musician got here on the back of their own merit, on the back of their, the merits of their own culture. No, um, even some black musicians did not, right, if we're being frank. And so the work is not in, the work is in figuring out how to honor the spaces we're in and not, for me, at least personally, the work is trying to figure out how to honor the spaces we're in and not making the spaces even smaller. And I know as a black artist, my first instinct is always to protect black art. And so when I see a thing, my first instinct is to go, I hate that and that's bad and that feels like it's stealing. And I have to fight against that. And I have to instead ask the hard question of, is this being done well in a way that is not harming the art I love? Was that too much to, t I'm sorry. No. That was a great question, by the way. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, honey. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for listening. Thank you also to everyone who spoke or performed or attended the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music. These recordings were produced in collaboration between the Student Activities Office at Calvin College and the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. You can find more recordings from the 2017 Festival of Faith and Music and short films from the festival concerts at ccfw.calvin.edu.